Dognitive therapy contains material which may be distressing to some listeners, such as domestic violence, animal cruelty, and mental health issues. A Podcast One production. How did you lose your eyesight? Um, so I have a condition called cone rod dystrophy. So it's a retinal um, disease where I slowly lost my eyesight. So I was diagnosed at the age of 19 um, and they couldn't tell me how fast or slow I would lose my eyesight. So it was just a waiting game. Um, at 23, so a few years later, I lost my driver's licence. Um, and then when I was about 29 was when it really started to deteriorate quickly. Um, and within that 12 months, I lost all my useful vision um, to now when I'm 32. So, yeah. That's Steph. She's had her guide dog, Rocky, for the last 12 months. She says having him in her life has been amazing. She's gotten her independence back. She's able to leave the house and know that Rocky is looking out for her. But it all comes down to trust. And sometimes Steph has to trust Rocky with her life. We were crossing at a pedestrian crossing one day and cars tend to park halfway across the crossing and I was telling him to go forward and he would not budge. And I was getting a little bit frustrated. I was like, come on, let's go. And he just wouldn't budge. And then I heard the car go. I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) So he knew that the car was halfway across the crossing and he knew it wasn't safe for me. So he was like, no, mum, I'm not going. Just listen to me and trust in me. And and then um, once the car had gone, he crossed the road. So it was pretty amazing. Steph says that Rocky is always there for her. He's not just a companion dog but in some ways a therapy dog who has a secondary job of being there for her emotionally. They're almost like one unit, one person. I just think he knows, and not only him, like I've found with other dogs, I feel like they know that you can't see. It's just like a lot of dogs are a lot more gentle with me than they are with other people. Um, And I just think they sense it and they almost know that you can't see and and that they need to be gentle with you. And obviously Rocky knows how important his job is to to guide me around safely and he takes it very seriously when he's got his harness on. My name's Laura V and welcome to Dognitive Therapy, a series that explores how human behaviour shapes dogs' behaviour. Today's episode is on trust. Trust isn't something that just develops between guide dogs and the vision impaired. We can all build trust with our dogs. I spoke with Justin and Aaron from Guide Dogs Victoria, who explained how a guide dog is trained and what we can all learn from the relationship between a vision impaired person and their dog. Justin and Aaron, thank you so much for joining me today. Aaron, can you tell me a little bit about what you do at Guide Dogs Victoria? Yeah, so my job at Guide Dogs Victoria at the moment is team leading the Guide Dog Client Services side. So that, that's taken into account all of our clients that are currently working with guide dogs in the field, and we, of which we have over 200 at the moment, and also then working with people who are coming to us for our guide dog services. So those individuals that are referred to us or or ring up with an inquiry about guide dog mobility and whether they'd be suitable for that, then we will just talk them through that, work work through the processes with them and hopefully end up with them uh, as one of our new guide dog handlers. And Justin, what about you? Uh, Well, I'm the guide dog training team leader at Guide Dogs Victoria and I have the fun part of getting our puppies back at 
12 months of age and helping to educate them to become guide dogs over the following six months when they come in. Is that hard to get them back after 12 months of living with a family? It's it's a bittersweet process with our (laughs) puppy raising families because they take on this bundle of joy and then they go through the terrible twos, the horrible threes, the teenage years (laughs) of all the puddles and the messes in the house. And then of course, uh, we get, or they get the phone call to say, we'd like the dog back in for assessment. So they don't know when that could happen. They're just waiting for a phone call around the 12 months of age. Is that right? They know it's around the 12 months of age and we have puppy advisors, supervisors going out to all our puppy raising families. And so they keep a pretty good contact uh, with the raisers. And so they will know that when their dog's around that 12 months, when the phone call should be coming and most people sort of will answer the phone and say, if that's guide dogs, we're not at home. (laughs) (laughs) That would be tough, wouldn't it? How did Guide Dogs Victoria start? Uh, Guide Dogs Victoria started um, back in the 1950s so where there was a gentleman that went over to the UK. He was he was a Dr Arnold Cook and he was studying in the UK and he trained with a guide dog over with the, the British Guide Dogs Association and brought his guide dog back to, to Australia. And then in uh, around um, 1962, the um, Guide Dogs Victoria uh, campus started at Kew. And has the way it works changed over so many decades of time? I think we've um, we've developed into a, a much bigger uh, association than, than it initially started off at and we're actually providing a lot more services than just guide dog mobility. So we do have a children's mobility service. We also have um, an acquired brain injury mobility service. So that's dealing with people that have had a stroke um, or maybe a car accident. Um, and we also have an adult mobility service as well. Can you explain exactly what vision impairment is? So vision impairment is where we all might, I wear glasses, for instance, for reading, so my, my vision is impaired in some way, but it doesn't really impact on my everyday life. It can be corrected um, by the use of the lenses in my glasses, but some people, it can't be corrected, so it's more of a permanent vision loss where they, it may impact on their ability to access things like normal print material or actually um, their, their mobility is impacted ne- negatively in some way, so they're starting to trip on hazards that they would have been able to see in the past. Um, and their vision, you know, gets to a point where they are challenged uh, moving around their environment. And that's when they'll approach us or they'll be referred to us for support in the mobility services. Some of our vision impairments is, is through diabetes. Right. Um, and um, and some clients have described it as the standing on a train station and one person has said all of a sudden a veil got thrown over his face or over his head and that was the retina actually detaching. So getting blind spots within the eye and it's really difficult for a lot of for us sighted people to try to work out what it is. So there's obviously total blindness and then low vision and a lot of general public don't realise, they think, oh, you're faking it. And there's an eye condition called retinitis pigmentosa. And it's sort of like tunnel vision, where if a good one is if you bring your hand up to your eye and look through it, if I have you lined up directly in front of me, I can see your face, but I cannot see the peripheral. So you Mm. lose all that peripheral field. Or another way is if if, uh, your listeners uh, have toilet rolls or the paper towel Uh, holders and look through that Mm. and so you can read because you have that acuity that you could actually still read providing it is in within the port so there's lots of different sorts of vision loss and 
with our acquired brain injury, there's there's one called um, hemnia, hemniopia, I'll be told off for not getting that right, where people can lose half of their fields in their left eye and their right eye. So everything on the left-hand side isn't there. So they will, if you put a, a bowl of food down in front of them, they will eat the right-hand side and the left-hand side will be there and that's where... Guide Dogs Victoria helps people how to use that remaining vision. That's incredible because when you think about blindness or vision impairment, you don't realise how complex it is and how many different types of people are affected and different types of conditions people can have. Roughly how many Aussies are affected by this, do you think? I don't have the the numbers (laughs) of that one, but there's a a lot of (laughs) people out there who are driving and they shouldn't be driving, you know, and um, I think it's, uh, there's more, you know, these days we're lucky because people who had strokes end up with vision impairment and they weren't detected. But these days they're, they're being detected. So there's, you know, through that, through your diabetes, car accidents, you know, Mm. we've had people shotgun accidents you know there's a number of reasons with a vision impairment and with the condition the retinitis pigmentosa that I was talking about the tunnel vision they people who have that in the daytime can look and see what's right in front of them but people are walking in and out of their their fields but yet those people at night time are totally blind because they don't have that, um, they just lose their vision. So they live in two worlds. Tell me about a day in the life of a guide dog. Okay, so a bit like a normal pet dog, I suppose. <laughs> they'll be, uh, they'll get up in the morning and they'll expect to go to the toilet and have some food. Um, we do use Labradors, so that's a big part of their life. Um, but they'll also, you, you know, they're living with somebody 24-7 and they're allowed to, uh, as, as we all um, can appreciate, the guide dog has access to any environment that the, the person wishes to use them as a mobility aid. So they don't get left at home, they don't, get, um, they don't, um, they don't avoid going to the cinema with the dogs, the dog can go into all these places. So the dog will get up in the morning and be with that person and look forward to going to work with them or to shopping with them, wherever, or their social activities, whatever they're doing. Um, when they're in the home, they're like a, a normal pet dog I suppose but a very well behaved pet dog we don't encourage them to get on the furniture we don't encourage them to scavenge for food or to beg for food so we want them well well behaved in any environment that they might be going into and then they'll go out with their their handler or their owner and they'll they'll take them safely around the streets so they'll They'll perform some some tasks such as stopping at curb edges to indicate road crossings. They'll avoid obstacles that are in the person's way. Um, They'll move around crowds. They'll remember um, repeated routes. So if somebody goes to a specific place on a regular basis, the dog will be able to remember where that is. Um, But the individual as well, the person needs to have good orientation and what we call good orientation and mobility skills um, to be able to direct the dog appropriately as to where they want to go. The dog won't wake up in the morning and say, oh, today we're going off to Coles or... (laughs) Today we're going off to work. Um, So they'll have to be given that information. You know, they'll have to be told when to turn, when to go straight on, when to cross roads, those sorts of things. So it's about a, it's it's, it's sort of a 50, we call it a 50-50 partnership where the dog has has a job to do, but the person also has a responsibility in that role as well. So... And some people think that we're cruel because of the fact that, oh, the poor dog's got to get out and work. But oh, tell the dog, us about that. Working but, is good, though, isn't it? Well, it is. And if you, I suppose if you go back a long way with dogs, they all had a job. You know, if they're going back, if you go back to your wolf packs, each dog and each pup had its role to play within 
within its, its its own community. And I think with the guide dogs is that the dogs love to work. Mm. And I think with um, when people do say, oh, gosh, the poor dog has to do all this work, it's if you ask those people what their pet dog's doing, and it's usually in the backyard being bored mm. where the guide dog is going into places, as Aaron said, into the community, it's going to work, it's with the person all the time, it's having a wonderful time. I know anyone listening who has a lab will know why you choose Labradors, <laughs> but can you explain what it is about that breed that makes them so great as a guide dog? I think in general, they've got a good level of general willingness, so that's always a positive thing for us to be working with with our dogs. Um, socially acceptable is another big thing as well. It's, uh, you know, when they're sharing spaces with the public on public transport or, or getting into cabs, those sorts of things, people are much more willing to accept having a Labrador sat next to them to, to maybe some other breeds that might not be quite so socially acceptable. Um, they're not overly intelligent, which is quite good. <laughs> Everyone's shaking their head uh, right now. Yeah, well, <laughs> Aaron, did you really say that? <laughs> if the dog has has too much initiative, then they can, you know, we, we, we the, the task we were talking about earlier are, are taught through repetition, and they, they're fairly basic tasks. But if the dog has too much initiative, then they could be using that against uh, what we want them to achieve, I suppose. So um, we want the, the dog to stay fairly much on the on the straight and narrow, and and you. Know, you know the the Labrador. We, we have a great success with them. That's that's the, that's the only breed that we use at Guide Dogs Victoria. Um, and yeah, it's yeah. And the other thing too is that they're what we call is low maintenance. <laughs> so if you can think about it, if you know your people are out there, like a staff, staffies are wonderful. But if you think a golden retriever or a uh, uh, Gosh, you're well, not yeah. talking about their hair, by the way, are you? That's what I'm actually talking oh, about. You are talking yes, about I that. am actually doing that because what a vision impaired or blind person has to do is that you need to feel your dog, groom your dog, mm. and look after the maintenance of the dog. So, all those animal husbandry things have to still take place. So, we have clients out there who, because of the short hair of the Labrador, I mean, the thing is with the Labrador, they molt and constantly mould. Mm. <laughs> but for a blind person to feel through the hair, they can. a lot of our clients will pick up lumps and bumps before the vet does. And, and that's important. So it's easy to maintain. If you've got a, a dog, we had Labradoodles years ago, and they were um, a cross between the Poodle and the Labrador. And with those, we had the hair in the ears that the clients had to trim the in between their feet they had mm. to trim them but some of them had to be clipped and then you um and also the hair around the eyes so that was more of a high maintenance dog so when you're vision impaired a low maintenance dog and one that is accepted into the community uh like the labrador is much better and easy f uh, easy handling mm. yeah today we're talking about the value of trust how important is it to have that mutual trust and bond between the owner and the dog? Oh, it's a, it wouldn't work without it. In, and we certainly, we, we, we sort of build on those things when, when the dogs come in for training. If we look at what the guiding work is, none, it's, none of it is instinctive work. If we look at other working dogs throughout, throughout the world, so you look at your, your farm dogs, your cattle dogs, your sheep dogs, um, your police dogs, your search dogs, those sorts of things, they're all building on instinctive behaviours of herding, of chasing, of scenting those sorts of things 
guiding work is working against all of the instinctive behavior and and you know asking the dog to stop at curbs it's not natural for a dog to do any of these behaviors but they 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 do enjoy it because you can't force them to do it so we work with the dog um building that trust we use a lot of positive reinforcement training um and develop that we understand that it takes a while and justin can talk about how long it takes to train a dog um and what our expectations are very early on as opposed to to later on in the relationship so they need to build that trust and relationship with the hand uh, the trainer to start with the person who's going to be training the dog and then that needs to transfer on onto the the handler as well and that's why we do use labradors another good reason is they're quite adaptable creatures they can mm -hmm. hand you can hand them over to a variety of people and they'll still work very well for them but yeah. i don't know if you want to add any more about the training side of it and how the trust works there just the training side is we look at a five to six month training period with our dogs so first of all we, we assess our dogs over a period of a week and we're looking at the dog's body language we're seeing how it's coping with the environment. So our puppy raising families are there to socialise our dogs within the community. And then we then look at how the dog responds to meeting other dogs, meeting people in the street, going up and down steps, seeing if there's any particular noises that, that affect the dogs. And at the end of that week, we get to know which dogs we're putting into training or the dogs that are choosing to go on to university. Mm. Now, not all dogs can go to university and they have a career change. So in the early days, we will look at the dogs that do not want to do guide dog work at other programs. But the dogs that go in to our training program, the it's teaching the dog to walk left to centre of the footpath, teaching the dog to concentrate straight ahead, introducing the curb stops, turns from left to right, um, going to steps and putting their front feet on the bottom step, indicating that to the client that there's a step mm -hmm. and then going up and stopping at the top, avoiding obstacles. There's so many different areas that we cover within it. But talking in, about trust is it builds up. We have, our, our trainers don't know which dogs they're getting until about a week before they're, they're due to come in. Um, we have records of our dogs on our puppy raising program. So the dogs come in and they're like, they're rat bags. Mm. They come into the kennels, they're partying, they just want to play hard. And so over that period of time, the instructor or the trainer is assessing that dog's temperament and how it's, will it be a dog that is trainable to go into our program. Within the training process of starting, the trust grows and builds. It doesn't just come in. They spend a lot of time watching, sitting in the kennels with the dogs or in the yards with the dogs, watching their behaviour, bringing the dogs up into the office. So we're constantly building on it and teaching the dog. With, for our trainers and our instructors, it's important that you actually train your dog right because we have quality checks throughout where, and I just did that today with one of our, our training team, went down and the trainer goes under blindfold. And so we then have, they have to put a lot of trust in their dog and mm. within their own work because they can't see now. So it's one of those situations like if I haven't trained this dog right, I'm going to you know, fall off the edge of the curb or run into an object or or not stop at the at the curb. So it builds up 
over a period of time over these, and there's good quality checks throughout. Um, so in terms of trust-wise, that's when you really get to know you've got to trust your own ability. You have to trust the bond that you're making within the, the uh, unit, so with the dogs that you're training. It's interesting to see the instructors and the trainers see, see them after the walk. It's like, oh, thank God, yes, isn't that wonderful? And they definitely give their dog a huge hug and a kiss because yeah. they know what they've done, yeah. We met Steph earlier and her gorgeous guide dog, Rocky, and she was telling us about sometimes she'll go for a walk and there'll be periods in which he won't budge and she'll try to coerce him along and he just won't move. And then a few seconds later, she'll hear the beeping of a truck backing out in front of her. How do you train a dog or how does a dog know to defy the owner's requirements at that time? It's a very tricky one because it very much depends on the environment the dog's working in and, and how much is going on in that environment as well and, and what level of concentration the dog has on that specific task at the time. So, um, you know, the dog does have a certain level of self-preservation, so we'll be building on that with the dog as well. So we'll be using that, that little bit of um, instinctive behaviour that we can sort of utilise in, in guiding work and, and bringing that out. Um, and it's really about us as trainers exposing the dog to as many different life experiences as we possibly can um, prior to it being matched with with somebody with low vision or blindness. So, um, you know, Justin's been talking very much in good detail about the, the dog training side of it. And as it gets towards the end of the dog training, uh, we'll be putting the dog under sort of simulation, as it were, working with, a, with somebody under blindfold a, a lot of the time so that the dog is required to take on a lot more of the responsibility and understands how that feels um, so that when they are handed over to somebody with low vision or blindness um, it's not a surprise to them their confidence has been built in those areas so uh, they will be aware of things in their environment um, we, we can't um, guarantee that they'll behave appropriately every time because um, you know they are a living animal so mm -hmm. they will make errors like we do at times um, and that's again that's how we we talk about that trust that the the individual needs to have in their dog to be able to, to freely move down throughout their environment, yeah. I'm Laura V, and you're listening to Dognitive Therapy. If you enjoy this series, give it a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to this show for free. In my work as a behaviourist, a lot of what I believe is that dog training is more about the person than the dog. How much do your clients shape the behaviour of their dogs? I mean, with shaping the dogs, and that's one thing we're very mindful of in the training process, mm. because the trainer or instructor can shape the dog. And we are shaping the dog in many, many ways to achieve the results of what we're after for guiding. In terms of client-wise, it's interesting what I've noticed is after a, a period of time, you can actually see the dog in the person and the person in the dog. Mm. It is um, a real uh, privilege, I think, to see it. And that's where we're lucky because we get snapshots of off that. But a client is that when they come in and train, and Aaron can probably talk about that process, is that we educate the, the client with the specific dogs. And uh, I, you might want to talk about that, Aaron. If yeah, yeah. So, I mean, Guide Dogs Australia are the only provider of, of services to people with low vision or blindness that have um, locations nationally. So that 
enables us to be quite close to our client base as well. So we we can spend um, a fair amount of our time talking to that client about what to expect as the, the guide dog to perform for them and giving them experiences as well. So actually, before they even start training with a guide dog or even think that guide dog mobility is right for them, we can go out and give them experience walks with, with dogs in harness. Um, when they come to train, because we've got that ability to, to be close to our clients, we can invite them in for residential training programs where they stay on site with us for, for three weeks at a time and they're with their dog 24-7. So we're actually teaching them how to use a dog. It's a bit like teaching someone how to drive a car. Mm. Yeah. So the dog has been trained, the dog's all ready to go, the person has, has developed their orientation and mobility skills that we talked to, talked about earlier and then we bring bring the two of them together and we start working them together. And the, the process that happens at that point is what we call the matching process where we look at the dogs that we've got in training and we look at the the people that we've got on our wait list and we try and match those individuals up as best we can with the right dog and that's that's taken into consideration um quite a few standard things like the speed of the person the size of the person the workload that that person needs the dog to do are they working in a country town are they working in the city every day are they commuting on public transport all those things but also it's the temperament of the dog and the character of the person as well that we're looking at. And and that's when, as Justin was explaining, you get to see the dog in the person and the person in the dog later on is as those characters sort of um, gel together. Um, you, you see, you might see with when you're doing your dog training that, you know, emotions travel down the lead. And we say that to our clients as well. You know, everything that they feel travels through the harness handle and into the dog as well. So the dog starts to become super sensitive to the person's needs. And they, they seem to really um, be able to take on that extra responsibility and uh, and start working really well. Do you think that's a similar message that companion dogs get from their owners that aren't vision impaired? Yeah, I believe it is. Yeah, yeah. They, they they just become sensitive to the individual's needs. They know when they're feeling a little bit low sometimes, um, and they also know when they're feeling a little bit more confident as well. And that'll that'll come out in the dog's work. Mm. And I think too, we we talk a lot about we've got to read the dog's body language and get to know the dog. What I've found is that the dog actually gets to know ours quicker than what mm. we do with them. And so the dog will, as Aaron said, it picks up our emotions very quickly. Um, it definitely knows if we're happy. It definitely knows if we're sad. And we've had clients who have turned around and said, oh, my dog has just come up and sat next to me and just knew that I was having a bad day. And we've had dogs, not that we train them for it, some of our diabetic clients, the dog has actually told the client when they're going to have a hypo and their sugars are down. So the connection that the two have over a period of time. So a lot of people will think one Labrador suits anybody, but it's not the whole process behind it. It's we're setting up like the perfect match, you know, and and if we don't get that right, then it, it, it's it's not a good outcome in terms of we've got to, we're fighting to make the process work. So it's the the process of understanding the dogs that are in training, understanding the client's needs, as Aaron said, height, weight, gait, environments. Then when you get two that are very similar, that's when we make the match. And so there's a lot of, um, it's not just picking a dog off the shelf. <laughs> and that then though, is that you have that fighting, or not the fighting, just not knowing how to deal with the dog, with the client and the dog. But over a period of the three weeks within our training centre, you, you get to see these people flourish and the dogs 
at the third week when the clients come back in. So they're in Monday to Friday. The first Friday when we let the dogs go down to the kennels, the dogs don't even care less about the clients. Like, yeah, I'm going back down to the kennels. But at the third, when they come back, the dog is so excited to see them and really say, oh, you've come back to me. And then over the next 12 months of, of growing together, you could not put a price on the dogs. And these dogs get to know there's, there's, there are certain aspects that we can't train these dogs to do, but they get to know what their client or their handler needs. So they, they get to know if you've got vision and you're going to use it, I'll take the easy road. If you need it, then the dogs really pull this amazing ability out to guide these people. They really do have such an amazing ability, dogs in general, to pick up on our body language and our emotional state. What can we do for our dogs to reciprocate that? What sorts of signs should we be looking for to make sure they're happy and and feeling good? I think it's yeah. What we work on really is is not just the the guiding side of it with our handlers as well. We also um, we also encourage them to to understand what the dogs um, you know physical and psychological needs are within when they're not working. Also, so um, you know it's, we talk to them about um, you know what toys would be best to use for the dog, what inv- environmental stimulation they can use within the home, um, some free time that the dog needs, maybe a free run in the park or you know a run around the backyard you know being able to let off that steam and just relax and be a dog for at times you know sniff their way around around the park if they want to because when they're in harness they're, they're not encouraged to do that sniffing behavior so um we certainly work work towards that and and try and avoid any build-up of um, excess stress or anxiety in the dog because we know that that would lead to uh, unsafe work for the individual and eventually a breakdown in the work as well so must be an extraordinary relationship of trust if one of your clients can go to an off-lead dog park and let their dog off-lead for that dog to come back and, and work for them again. How does that relationship occur? Yeah, yeah, it's it's um it, it is an interesting one, and and you know we were we would usually recommend that people go with somebody with sight to assist them in that environment because although they they know their dog very well and they know their dog's behaviour very well, they can't. They can't honestly understand what other dogs' behaviour within that park is going to be like. So we wouldn't want them to put their dog in danger and go without any support, where at least if they go with a sighted assistance, they can let them know if anything's about to go wrong um, with another another mm. animal in that park. Yeah. And a guide dog's not always working. People mm. often think, oh, they, they look depressed or they look sad. But the fact is their head's down and they're concentrating. They're looking up, they're looking down, they're looking left and right. So they're fully concentrating. But they, if you think about a, a person who might leave home, get on a train, walk through the city, get to the office, the harness is off the dog once they're at the office. The dog can go and go around the office, say hello to everybody and then come back to its bed and sit there and and snooze. Then it goes, the harness will go on, they will take the client out to, uh, the the dog out to relieve, come back in. So they're out and about, but they're not on duty 24 hours a day. And at home, they're... I've seen many different sides. What we say and what actually happens are two, sometimes two different things. Is The dog is a normal dog. You know, if there's kids in the household, they go running and playing and the dog turns into the family pet. You know, you often see dogs slinking off the bed if when you turn up. It's like, yeah, we know that's happening. 
They go out, they go for car trips, they do all that dog fun. They do have toys, as Aaron said, they play. They they really have a wonderful work-life balance Mm -hmm. and it doesn't only help the client, you know, it helps the the family. I mean, and Aaron has experienced this too, is where the dog's out doing the guiding work, which helps the person themselves within that bond, but also within home, it helps within the relationships all around. There, there are families that have got children who are autistic and the dogs just seem to know how to react differently within that. Um, within the dogs going out um, at home, you know, it's very difficult for partners to see their, their loved ones go out with a dog. But once that bond and that trust comes into it, it's not only the client who has to trust it, it's the family members that have to also. It's such a... So they have a lovely work-life balance mm. and you'd walk in and the kids would have their head on the dog or they'll be mm. you know, playing tug-of-war with it or every now and then the, the biscuit will come out and go to the dog. <laughs> the biscuit tin, they know that sound, no matter they, what dog they are. <laughs> they know it all right. <laughs> I, love, I love how you're talking about the value of having a job and having an important role in the family network. And I think a lot of dogs, companion dogs that have behavioural issues don't have a job. Mm. What could people at home learn from guide dogs and people who have guide dogs in terms of giving your dog a job and, and having a role in life in terms of their behaviour? Yeah, I think it's it's very good because um, it's about giving the dog some sort of activity or some sort of purpose, I suppose, some sort of, and consistency as well. It's um, we work a lot on consistency and getting the right right responses from our guide dogs. Um, so it's about saying, yeah, this is the dog needs you know proper exercise. It needs to have access to the proper appropriate safe toys that they can play with. Um, they need stimulation to 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 play with the, their family. Um, whether that be another dog in there, another pet dog in the home, or, or children, or the, the mother and father, whoever's living in that home, um, just giving the dog time. Um, and, yeah, providing it with with um, little tasks. There's some great things that are on the market nowadays that people can use. You know, you can fill stuff with, with bits of biscuit and the dog can spend hours trying to get them all out. And it's just utilising the dog's um, natural interest, I suppose, in the world that they can sort of utilise it. So they're not getting bored, which could lead to, um, you know, some negative behaviours such as destructive behaviour, could lead to anxiety, could lead to some toileting problems within the home. Um, and we, we find that we just don't have any of that with the guide dogs that are working successfully in the field. They're, um, they're very well behaved in the home. And I think one thing to think about too, if you are getting a pet dog, look and research because, you know, I, I remember I wanted to look at a Malamute and <laughs> I thought... You decided against that, I guess? <laughs> I absolutely decided against it and I think it was a good decision too. So I think look at your own lifestyle and then look at what the dogs are because cute little puppy dogs are all cute mm. and that's how a lot of people will select a dog. And I think with what Aaron had said too is that you've got to be able to stimulate the dog enough that you can attend to its needs but not overdo it either that you if once again if you live in Melbourne and you're only got a small backyard don't go and get a kelpie you know <laughs> but you need to also put in and think long term with a with a dog because what can happen if you don't do the research and don't put in the attention that the dog needs as well as it's got to fit into your lifestyle 
that's when you'll start to break that relationship up. And if you, it's like any marriage or relationship with any human. If you don't put that time in, understand each other, it's not going to happen. So I think for, for the listeners out there is that, yeah, do your homework. There's no rush. If you want a dog, you'll always be able to get one. But look at what its natural traits are and its natural abilities are. What would life be like without guide dogs? Shut your eyes. <laughs> and just think about not going out. It's not the be-all and end-all. You know, the guide dog plays a very big role. But as a, your world, as your vision comes in, your world comes in and you start making excuses of not going out. Now, there are people that both Aaron and myself have trained and they've walked around with the cane and we're, we're not just dogs. You know, we have all those other services that Aaron mentioned earlier. But I know a person I've been working with, with a cane, people have not gone up to this person. With a dog, it has opened up the communication and people will say, hello, well, aren't you beautiful? And it's been able to open up a world that wasn't there for a lot of people. Yeah, those are the extras other than just the mobility side of things and the safe mobility. It's an icebreaker mm. is one of the positives about a guide dog. It's also one of its negatives because people want to talk to people all the time so, <laughs> and they can't get on with their everyday lives. But um, it does open up social you know, social avenues for these for, for people who have guide dogs and want to take that, that sort of direction in life as well. Um, it's very easy for somebody to come up and ask, you know, the dog's name, but if somebody's standing there with a long cane, it, you know, people are, are less, uh, I suppose, encouraged to go up and speak to people. But for anyone listening, please, if you do see somebody there with a long cane, they need the help just as much as anyone with a guide dog does, if, if not, maybe more. So please always offer that support when you're out and about. Um, but I think, yeah, we, we had a recent program um, at Guide Dogs Victoria and uh, somebody posed the question, well, what's the, what's the most difficult decision you have to make every day? And, and this was to a group of uh, low vision and blind people that were on the course. And uh, a lot of them agreed that one of the most difficult decisions they made was actually to, to leave the house every morning. So um, if a guide dog can support somebody in doing that and make it a little bit easier for them, then once out and about, then obviously it, it gets a little bit easier. And it's companionship mm. and security too. It's it's the fact that you're walking, you're not walking on your own. Mm. You've got somebody. So people are there talking about, you know, what they're going to cook for tea and having a wonderful conversation with their dogs. And you see the dog just, yep, taking it all on board. It, it, they are, you know, a person I've just worked with recently, um, Aaron and myself, and, and unfortunately she has a lot of post-traumatic stress and... I saw her with the cane and she, her balance was really bad, didn't want to go out, a lot of depression. It was, it was quite a confronting situation. This person, um, we matched her with a guide dog and, and she's had the dog for three months now, six months I should say, and um, she now gets out, she get, leaves the house, she is walking faster, she is confident, she is going into shopping centres, all these things that she avoided. She comes into Melbourne and she has gone to Geelong um, on her own, all these things that she would never, ever have done beforehand. Mm. And it's only that she's got this tr absolute trust in her dog. And also, as she's been growing with the dog, the dog has highlighted to her, hey, I can do this. 
and so she trusts the dog and will go with the dog. Um, so it's the change in that bond and that trust that they have, it's just incredible. Mm. It's just uh, you, you can't put a price on it. You can't see that just seeing somebody walking down the street. But, mm. but these guide dogs get people out. It's not the be-all and end-all. It's, it's a team effort. And that comes into that trust, that bond, that relationship and building on that. And people will fly when they, they get it. Justin and Aaron, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Rocky has shown me that he is, that I can trust him to be there for me emotionally as well as um, physically. So if I'm having a bad day or something's happened and I just don't feel right, he will always come up to me and just lay his head on me and, and give me a little kiss or just come over to me like it's beautiful. Like they just, he just can sense if I need him. This show was written by me, Laura V, and my amazing producer, Dave Swalinski. Audio production is by Darcy Thompson. Executive producers are Jennifer Goggin and Grant Tothill. If you want to see additional content, photos and videos of some of the gorgeous dogs in this series, go to our Instagram page at podcast1au or check us out on Facebook. Dognitive Therapy is a Podcast One production recorded in the Podcast One studios, Melbourne.